0: hello everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of notes from the library as always i'm your host emma and today i'm really excited to talk about this book because this is the book that i read my freshman year in college and when i was surrounded by books i did not like because of the books my teacher picked and I, all throughout high school and college i've taken these literature classes thinking that they're going to be one thing And teachers throw me these other books and I was reading these books my freshman year and I was not happy with them. And then I read Red Calvary by Isaac Babel and it is the book that just completely changed the way I view books and writing and it really like gave me such a passion to write and everything about it is beautiful and Babel's writing style is gorgeous and I'm so excited to talk about it. So today might be a little bit longer of an episode, and I'm also trying to still work out the formula for how to structure these podcasts. So I'm going to be mixing up a little bit, trying to cover everything I want to talk about and still try to condense it all. So bear with me as the next couple episodes, I'm going to try to mix and match the structure and see what works. As you can tell, I've been trying to do that throughout the past episodes, but haven't really found when that works yet. So please stick with me and I really hope you enjoy it and that you pick up this book afterwards. It is amazing. The translation that I have, it's the Pushkin Press, Red Calvary by Isaac Babel, and is translated by Boris Drakou. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I probably am. I'm not the, I don't know Russian, so I don't always know how to pronounce their names, but I will try throughout this book. But this combination of the writing and the translation by Boris is absolutely gorgeous. It's my favorite one. I've read another translated version, and I didn't like it as much because I think it lost a lot of the choices you can pick with because when you're translating i mean like i know i translate a lot of things into italian because i speak italian i read it and i write it and sometimes there's multiple words either in english or in the foreign language that you can pick and it all depends what words you pick whether you're combining words where you're leaving things out the context the structure the diction all of that can really change the way you write a book and i think this is a perfect example on how to translate a book and make it still sound so formal and have it flow properly as if it was written in english itself And I have to admit this is the book that kind of made me want to learn Russian and then I started getting more into Russian literature and this book really opened a flood. After that I dove into Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and so many other people and this is the book that really gave me the gateway to Russian literature, movies, films and it's just a really interesting culture that they have with their literature because... I can't really think of a time when the Russians have ever been free to really write what they want. They they've never had freedom of the press. And we have in America and many other Western countries. So I'm very excited to talk about this book and to see what happens and maybe dive more into Russian literature. And if you like that and you're interested in that, please let me know. I would, I, it's my, it's my show, but I also want it to be your show too. I want to talk about the books you want to talk about. I want to talk about the topics you want to talk about. So please let me know as we're going to work our way through this and see everything that happens. So, let me talk about who Isaac Babel is. Now, Isaac Babel was a Russian writer. He was also Jewish, and in this time, it was right before the Russian Revolution where he lived, and then he was killed in Stalin's purges in 1940, which I'll talk more about later. He was 45 when he died. He was a short story writer, which is Red Cal reads a bunch of short stories. He was also a playwright, a translator, and a journalist. He did join the Red Army, during the Russian Revolution, which were the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks were the Red Army fighting against the Russian government, which was a monarch at that time. So this was during the revolution that happened right after World War One, As we know, Russia pulled out of World War I because they started having the Russian Revolution led by the Bolsheviks and Lenin. And then after Lenin died, eventually Stalin came in and that's when we learned about World War II and a lot more of the cruelties and the hardships that happened under com- uh, communism in Russia. Well, they used to be called the USSR. So he did have a lot of popularity in his life and he was very famous as he was writing compared to other writers that weren't. He was well known and he had projects and he had people studying under him and in- and kind of like modern day interns that would work for him. And he did publish a lot, he worked a lot. And then he also made sure to keep his life very closed off, very subtle, cause he was writing about things that would get him in trouble. And also the fact he was Jewish was not good in that time period because as you know, the Bolsheviks did not like Jewish and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox because they, uh, because communism is the basis that the state is the overall superior being, much like fascism is. And then those two religions we've learned throughout his, um, those two former governments, sorry, not religions. Those two former governments have not taken well to religions, especially those that are outside of their country and that they deem as foreign or improper in the eyes of their government and their society. So it's a little bit about Isaac Babel. I'll talk a little bit more about him later, but let's talk about why it's called Red Cavalry. So not only did he join the Red Cavalry, but this is a book of little essays and short stories written by different people in the book and different narrators to talk about different things. And constantly throughout it, they mentioned the Red Cavalry Calv- Men newspaper and they write to Comrade Editor, which was their editor in chief, but they all call each other Comrade because that's what they did in communist Russia. So they write to the Red Calvary Man newspaper. And so this hypothetically is a book of the essays that were published in the Red Calvary Men newspaper, which is a fictional newspaper, but the stories are many times accurate to what had actually happened. This is not like any other war book I have read because the writing is so beautiful that it makes you actually numb to the fact that this is a war and they talk about such like gruesome things that happen and death and destruction and war and famine and abuse, anything you can think of in a war book, but the way he writes it is so poetic and beautiful that it makes you numb that you're like, this isn't a war book and it is and you forget that and I oftentimes forget it even though I know very well this is a war book and it's just gorgeous writing and it's other other war books try to make it so gritty you're like yeah this is not what i want i don't want that where this book it's almost like a poetry that's how i would describe it it's almost poetry in prose and the way he's describing this war and it makes you forget that the situation these men are in is not only gruesome in fiction but in the fact that many of these times these stories were real And this is what men had really experienced on the battlefield and what the people in these surrounding towns that they went through and fought in what they dealt with, too. I mean, he talks about women and children and even horses, which I'll talk more about later. And all these people, you don't realize that this was their reality. And just the poetry behind it makes you as a reader kind of feel a little bit guilty for forgetting it's a war book. And I think that really shows how talented he is as a writer, that he takes such gruesome things and make them sound so beautiful in the way they are. Now, this book I talked about is the book that really made me fall in love with Russian literature. And at first, I didn't really like it until I hit this one chapter. And I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. It's very short. It's only about three pages long. It's called Jadali, and it talks about how these people are. And I actually got the the, um, title for this episode from this chapter, and I want to read parts of it to you. So they're talking to... um, Old Jadali, they call him, and he's one of the people that they meet. He's a little smoke shop owner, and so they're going to talk about him. So let me get the page. Okay. Old Jadali paces around his treasures in the pink emptiness of the evening, a little shop owner in smoky glasses and green frock coats reaching down on the ground. He rubs his little white hands, tugging at his gray as little gray beard and bowing his head, heeds the invisible voices drifting down to him. The shop is a box, of an inquisitive and serious boy who some day, become a professor of botany. The shop is both buttons and dead butterflies, and the little owner is named Jadali. Everyone left the bazaar, but Jadali remains. He weans his way through the labyrinth of globes, skulls, and dead flowers. whisk his motley brush of rooster feathers and blows the dust, off the parish flowers. We. Are sitting at an empty beer keg. Jadali twists and untwists his narrow beard. His top hat sways above us like a black turret. Warm air flows past us. The sky changes colors. High up, delicate blood flows from the overturned bottles, and I am enveloped in the faint odor of decay. The revolution, we say yes to her, but we will say no to Sabbath, begins Jadali, entwining me in the silk straps of his smoky eyes. Yes, I cry to the revolution. Yes, I cry out to her, but she hides from Jadali. And all she sends our way is shooting. The sun doesn't enter the eyes that are closed, I answer the old man. But we will rip those eyes open. The pole's eyes are closed, the man whispered, almost inaudible. The pole is a mad dog. He takes a Jew and pulls out his beard. And then they are beating him good, the mad dogs of both sides. That's wonderful. That's the revolution. And then the one who beats the pole says to me, We have taken your gamma phone in account, Jadali. But I love music, Panny, I tell the revolution. You don't know what you like, Jadali. I'll shoot you and then then you'll find out and I can't help shooting because I'm the revolution. She can't help shooting, Jadali. I say, the old man, because she's the revolution. But the pole shot, my dear Pan, because he's the counter-revolution. You shoot because you are the revolution. But the revolution is happiness and happiness doesn't like orphans in the house. Good deeds are done by good men. The revolution is the good deed of good men, but good men do not kill. So the revolution is the work of bad men, but the Poles, too, are bad men. So who will tell Jadali where the revolution and where is the counter-revolution? I once studied in Tamal. I love the commentaries of Rashi. I love the commentaries of Radashi, the book of Madonis. And there are the other men of wisdom in Sitarman. And here we are, all learned men, falling on their faces and crying out loud, woe unto us, where is the sweet revolution? That was the quote that kind of made me. The idea that you shoot because you're the revolution, and the revolution is happiness. Because a lot of these men, when they're fighting, they think that they're doing what they're doing is good. And that's for both sides of the war. Oftentimes, it's young men fighting for their country, thinking what they're doing is good. And then it's not till they get there that they realize, oh gosh, this is war. This is what I'm going through. And that whole thing kind of sums up the whole book. They often have fights with the Poles, which are people from Poland on the border. Because this is during Soviet uh, to turn into Soviet to so this you don't have Ukraine or Belarus or any of those so Poland is the border between them and more of Western Europe so they're fighting the Poles and then there's also talk about a lot of the Jewish people of Russia because there's a lot of conflict with them and the Bolsheviks so that's kind of the three main players in the book that they mostly talk about it's the Bolsheviks the Poles and the Jews And then they also mention, they've actually very, very rarely mentioned the Russian government that they're actually fighting. It's more, these three and the conflicts that arise between the three of them, which I find very interesting because we're always taught that the Russian Revolution was between the Red Army, the Bolsheviks, and the Russian government. And you never really learn that there were other people around that were causing these fights and everything. So I found that extremely interesting that they always brought that up. But just that whole quote that we scream yes to the revolution and we glorify war and everything and then oftentimes we throw men out there not realizing the consequences because during World War One that's when we start to learn about shell shock, which later becomes we learn as PTSD and all these other things that happen and I think this is the real turnaround when we start to learn like this has drastic effect on what we're doing to the youth and how we do it. And I think that quote is just also if you're the revolution, someone else has to be the counter revolution. Like for example, the American Revolution you had the you had the Patriots, which were the revolutionaries, versus the loyalists and the British government. So they were the counter revolution to the revolution. But did they see but did Britain see themselves as a counter-revolution? or they just thought themselves as we're just gonna keep what we have? That's very interesting to me because it's tribalism, you have to pick what side you're on. Oftentimes you can't be in the middle. And it really raises the question is does tribalism work? And what happens if the people bite the hand that feeds them and you're the one that's feeding them? I think that's very interesting. I think Babel really goes through that a lot. And that's probably my favorite thing of the quote. That really that turned away my that turned around my whole view of this book and actually made me fall in love with it. And I read the book so often. I probably every couple of months I pick it back up, reread it. It's not that long, actually. The copy I have is actually kinda of small. It's like just the size of it. It's all about two a little over two hundred pages, so it's not bad. You can probably read in a day. I know I usually read in a day. Sit down one Sunday, read it all the way through, love it again. And I always keep falling more and more in love with it. So, now there's a lot of things I still want to talk about. And I'm going to call this maybe like the speed round edition of different things because I've learned in a lot of the books I've been reading and even the books I've already talked about. There's a lot of things I want to talk about but they're not big enough to have a whole like section. So I'm going to start thinking I might do the speed rounds where I just throw these little ideas or quirks or thoughts that I had about the book and different things I saw. At you guys and I hope this works out with the way it does because I really want to talk about so many different things with you guys So the one thing well, the first thing I thought was also very interesting is um the use of horses Because I think we forget now we know about tanks and planes and because really after World War two war has become so mechanized. And we have so much machines and technology that we often forget that. Horses were often used or you often have to walk to the battlefield. And in this book, they care a lot about their horses and they care a lot about the health and the safety of them. And it's kind of like that movie War Horse, which I remember reading the book and seeing the movie when I was little. And I think it kind of shows that not even 100 years has passed since this book was based in. This book is based in after the Russian Revolution, and it starts off in uh, 1926. It's only 2002. So not even 100 years has passed, and the way war was fought is so different, and it's just through the roof, even between the era of World War One and World War Two, just rapidly. They went from fighting with with horses to the nuclear weapons and I think that really kind of shows it and it's quite kind of nice to see how they care so much about these horses and um it's very similar to how like military and police and firefighters they have the dogs and if the dog dies in battle they are of the purple heart And they're given full honors if they're injured. And I think that's what they treat the horses. The horses have honors. They have rankings. And I think it's kind of just showed that we went from horses to dogs. But we still have that connection that animals are man's best friend. And they will go into battle with us. And that if they are, you have to respect them. And I think that's really nice and kind of interesting to see. Pan is the person that they're talking about in the last quote I read that um you shoot because you're the revolution and everything and I find it very interesting how he describes Pan because Pan has his own chapter and a couple chapters later is that quote and when Pan is introduced it says Pan Opalek wise and wonderful went to my head like old wine and then it keeps going. It says, surrounded by simple heart glow of angels, I vow to follow an example of Pan Opelette and the sweetness of dreamy malice, bitter contempt for the curs and swines of humanity, the fire of silence and intoxicating vengeance. I'll sacrifice them all to this new vow. So Pan, even though you actually don't see a lot of him throughout the book, he comes and goes and he talks about it, but he's there for like important parts and he'll kind of like disappear. So he's like a reoccurring character. But the narrator and multiple of them really honor Pan in what he does and how he's described. He, He's described it almost like Achilles, like this warrior that kind of does no wrong. And it's kind of just interested to see how these men react to Pan so much that he has his own chapter. And every really, really important quote or really important thing in the story that happens or occurs somehow has Pan involved or he's mentioned. So I do find that very interesting. And I kind of wish that we got to see more of Pan. I wish he was more of it. Because I think just having him around and learning more about him. Or even having him narrate a thing would be really cool. There's another quote which I also think is very nice. Because um, how they go through women in this book is very different. All the men show a lot of respect to women but also kind of not. There's a go between them. But there's this one thing. And there's one chapter. Every chapter opens up beautifully. He knows how to set... The stage for a chapter or a short story, depending on how you view it. One chapter starts with, All things are mortal, but only a mother is destined for eternal life. And when a mother is no longer among the living, she lives be- behind a memory that no one dares to desecrate. A mother's memory nourishes compassion within us, just like the ocean, the boundless ocean, nourishes the river that cleaves the universe. These were Jared Dolly's words. So Pan and Jared Dolly are constantly reoccurring. But I find like that's just a beautiful sentiment because you would think that this is a war book and men are the primary subject of this book. That you would think it'd be different. But no, he talks a lot about women and he cares. He notices them a lot and you see these men take care of these women and that kind of also shows that. Even throughout the brutality of war, they still are protecting the most vulnerable among them. Women, children, and even the pets that they live for. Now this isn't really, the next topic's not really that serious, but I just find it very funny that there's this whole trend like, oh, save the bees, save the bees. And I think Isaac Babel started that trend because one of the chapters actually just starts with, I mourned for the bees. So I was actually on an airplane reading this. I was just traveling down to Savannah for a book festival. And I remember reading that. I was like, you gotta be Kimiko. He was the first person to be like, yes, save the bees. I love the bees. And I thought that was funny and maybe you don't but I just thought that was kind of funny that it's been how many years and people are like yes save the bees and I have a theory that Isaac Babel might have started that so we're giving Isaac Babel credit for the save the bees movement and that we mourn for the loss of bees and so yes it started because of the Russian revolution and I stand by that so there's this other chapter again with the opening of these chapters he knows how to catch your attention And he has this one person making almost like a speech beginning of it. And it transfers to narration. It goes, countrymen, comrades, brothers. And when I read that instantly, I thought, friends, Romans, countrymen. the famous opening line of Mark Anthony's rhetoric about Julius Caesar after he's murdered to try to get the Romans to agree with him. He starts off with friends, Romans, countrymen. Where this is kind of the opposite. Countrymen, comrades, brothers. And I find that that's such like a normal like cry for people to come together like and I'm actually gonna do a whole chapter especially for the Ides of March I'm going to do Julius Caesar so look out for that episode on the Ides of March there's gonna be a special episode on top of the normally weekly episode but I just thought that was very funny because it kind of shows how people are not all that different even among cultures and time periods because how this person gets the attention of these essentially communists because he talks to the red army and a lot of times the the communists in russia they would burn a lot of books they want to get rid of anything that resembled the old world and they want to start a brand new utopia and to start a speech to the red army the same way that mark anthony and so many people in the western european canyon of speeches and writing and literature have started i thought that was very interesting that many people do and now it's kind of like a joke like oh friends romans countrymen or like you fix it to meet your standard i mean i've i once took a speech writing class and someone started off with with boys falcons students of my class that we all hate like And he, like, I've seen parodies of it, and I find it very interesting that of all the things that Shakespeare had written, especially all the things of Julius Caesar in that play and in real life, and all the things that Mark Anthony's done, that's the thing that really steps forward. And I've seen other books mention that before, and I thought that was very interesting. And look out for that episode, because it is coming soon. Okay, so the next topic I want to talk about as we're, I'm kind of just going through the book, rapid fire, all these topics. So I'm really hoping this kind of gives you a whole summary of the book different things I found, and hopefully it makes you want to pick up the book. next thing I want to talk about is these men are very proud of what they fight for, whether it's they're in line with the Red Army and the Bolsheviks, or they're in line with the Russian monarch and government. These men care about what they do, and the idea of masculinity and I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees is very strong throughout this book, that I'm going to do everything I can to win and to bring the life I want. And this is the values I have, I'm gonna fight for them no matter what. And there's this one thing, when they're talking to someone and whether or not they should do it. And they talk about death or whether or not how this person should die. It says, commissioner, he shouted. Commissioner, I say. Communist, he shouted. Communist, I say. In my dying hour, he shouts. As I take my final breath, tell me, my Kozak friend, are you a communist or are you lying? I'm a communist, I say. So my grandpa sits on the ground. Kisses some sort of amulet, breaks his saber in half, the two limbs going in his eye, two lanterns above the dark steep. Forgive me, he said, I cannot surrender to a communist. He takes my hand, forgive me, and hack me down like a soldier. This story was told to us during the halt by Conklin, political commissioner of the cavalry Brigade and three-time recipient of the Order of the Red Banner with his usual buffoonery. And what did you and the pan agree to, Vasca? What can you agree? to with a fellow like that had too much honor for him i even bowed to him but he wouldn't give so i took whatever papers he had took the miser the old crank saddle still under me to this day and i see more and more blood dripping out of me there's an awful sleepiness coming over me my boots are full of blood i'm not thinking of him so you put the old man out of his misery then sad to say and whether Weverside you're on during war a lot of people they do rather die on their feet to live on their knees and that's really a lot throughout this many war books in general they they're like oh, i'm not dying this way like i'm not dying at the hands of my enemy and that happens throughout the book often there's a lot of people talk about like are we gonna die how are we gonna die was an honorable way to die versus was was a disrespectful way to die i found that very interesting so there's another thing I want to talk about, coming back to the idea that they do take care of the women around them and everything. And during war, especially in in Russia, there's been a lot of history of, especially during the winter, famines, starvations, a lot of things. And it's kind of a, something that goes throughout all, all war-torn countries. You have the food rations, the and the clothing rations and everything you have. But here they're talking to a woman who is completely distraught and and someone says please sit woman in the corner there and tend to your child the way mothers do no one will touch you in the corner and that will get your husband untouched just like you want him and we're depending on your conscience to bring up some new blood for us because the old are getting old and the young you see are hard to come by we've seen plenty of grief women but we were drafted and when we re-enlist pressed by hunger blistered by the cold but you sit here woman and don't you worry so there is this idea of taking care of the most vulnerable because women are going to give you kids and then of course the kids will grow up and be a part of this army because they uh, their draft or voluntarily or whatever it is. So there's this idea constantly of taking care of women and be like I'm not gonna hurt you just take care of your kids and I'll keep you untouched because we need your kids in the future which is kind of cynical when you think about it when you break it down more. Throughout the book also you see a lot of brothers and what my brother did and how my brother died I'm fighting for my brother so this is this brother whether it's family or my brother in arms or my blood brothers I mean you definitely see these men have relationships and they care about what they're doing and the people around them and they talk about like the death that they grieve when someone dies and wanting to get revenge and wanting to bury them properly and they can't because they're in war they can't do this they can't do that so it's definitely something that comes up and that kind of leads me into my final thoughts and wrap-up of this book, because I don't want to give away too much. I really want you to go read this book, and it's beauty. Babel did fight for the Bolsheviks. He joined in 1970 during the Civil War, and he actually served as a political commissioner in the Red Army, something that was asked earlier in the book. Commissioner, communist, what are you? And he did fight, and he documented, it, and that's where a lot of these stories come from. But Then, in 1939, he was arrested by the NKVD, which, when translated to English, it's the People's Commissioner of Internal Affairs because it was fabricated charges of terrorism and espionage, and then he was executed in Stalin's purges in 1940. And like so many people that have fought for these, especially totalitarian governments, whether it's fascism, Nazism, communism, Stalinism, Maoism, a lot of these people... They fight for this thing. It's gonna be one thing, and then they find themselves facing the wall, and that they have, and that they find themselves everything they fought for ripped away from them as they are killed. And you see it often in these types of governments, and it kind of raises a question: What happens when you find the gun now? Pointed at you. There's this quote that I read. I read this political book once. My friend had given to me, and it was a um, um, and it was a Ben Shapiro book. He'd given it to me, and I believe it was the three ways to destroy america it was something like that and this quote kind of stuck out to me i think it also kind of relates to Babel and the situation he found himself in oh the book is called how to destroy america in three easy steps this is quote nothing states that the democratic majority must represent the highest good it's a competition of interests with competing values jockeying for control of the gun before you grant the government the power to wield a gun it's absolutely necessary that you think about what happens if your political opponent ends up on the trigger end and you and you end up staring into the muzzle. Now, a little bit different context with Babel. I mean, it was still his people, he was a communist and he fought for the Bolsheviks and then he found himself being executed by them later on when Stalin took over. And it does raise the question is, you fight so hard for something and it doesn't turn out the way you want it. And this is a very extreme example. I mean, he fought for communism and he wanted in the Russian Revolution. He was a Bolshevik, he fought for them. And eventually found himself being executed by the Bolsheviks. And it leads to, you fed into this system and you gave everything and then they turn around and bit you. They bit the hand that feeds them. And a lot of people say it's because of what he wrote and everything and about what he wrote. And yes, it has something to do with it because Stalin burned a lot of books. He got rid of a lot of people. If you stepped out of line, you were gone. But it really raises the question, what happens when tribalism doesn't work out for you and how quickly you can go from being on top of the world and beloved to executed and shunned from society and it does it raises a question what do you do if your enemies are on the trigger end and you're on the and you're staring down the muzzle of the gun and I truly believe that that is why we have to keep reading books like this and we have to learn from the mistakes of people after us and this is not a political statement this is more of a Whatever you do, make sure you don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't go head first into something and not realize what could happen down the road. And it's hard because I know I often sometimes don't look what could happen down the road if I do this. And that often has kind of bit me, bit me back. And so really, I think the main message of Red Calvary, even though I don't think it was Babel's original intent, was make sure when you find yourself in a dangerous situation to be careful to make sure you see what could happen down the future because you don't wanna be bitten because you're the hands that feed someone and you don't want to put someone on a pedestal or put something in motion that could come around and kinda get you the consequences come back. There's always a consequence for your action, where it's good or bad, and everyone eventually has to sit down at that table of your consequences and deal with it and handle it. But I think this is a book that learns and shows you what happens in war. And the consequences of war and what happens and how it completely destroys people and how oftentimes you think you're fighting for good and you think you're fighting for something good and that these people are on your side and once you step out of line they're not so sorry to end a little bit on a negative note but next week i'm reading the stranger by albert Camus. love him love his books i'm reading the stranger first because i got a lot of things to talk about in a lot of stories i'm actually going to tell you a story about how reading the stranger And giving my opinion on it in my college class actually caused me to lose a friend, surprisingly. Someone was so angry about my hot takes on The Stranger that they didn't speak to me for the rest of the year. So, look forward to talking to you about that. Look forward to reading that. And then the week after that, we are reading none other than Donna Tartt with The Secret History. And if anyone knows me well, you know. Love that book. So, looking forward to these next two episodes. And... Remember what I said, if you know when the Ides of March are, be ready for a special episode that day. And I'm really looking forward to doing more. And as a reminder, TMP, which produces this podcast, is having a live stream on February 24th to um, celebrate our one-year anniversary, even though our anniversary actually is on the 23rd. But I am actually the one hosting the live stream because I am the editor-in-chief. And I actually got tickets to go see Jordan Pearson on the 23rd, For my birthday, my mom is taking me. I'm going to celebrate my 21st birthday with Jordan Pearson at his event and hopefully maybe get some drinks afterwards, hoping maybe to run into Jordan Pearson because I love him and I'm actually going to read his books and talk about them one day in the podcast, probably maybe do a special episode about the talk and everything, but I'm looking forward to all this in the future. So stick around for those episodes coming up and remember February 24th and I'm still figuring out the time and date, a uh, time for it. I will let you know on the official TMP Instagram and also on mine. So please look out for that. It's gonna be super fun. And We're we'll gonna talk about the projects we have, the history of the company, do a Q&A with anyone that's on the live stream. It will be hosted on Instagram. And I'm also gonna be talking about some greenlit projects that we have and also some projects I'm really hoping to do in the future if I can convince people to be a part of them and if I can find more people to. Be a part of it because we're starting our recruitment process because we're, figure we're finishing up all the legal stuff. So probably too much information dumping on you guys because you guys are here to read about books and not learn about all the other projects on the side. But I'm looking forward to next week's episode and talking more with you guys. And as always, I would love to have a co-host to talk to me about these books with. I am actually looking for one. So if you are interested or if you know someone. I would love to talk about books and everything. I got a couple episodes planned out, but nothing says we can't shake things up, mix things up, maybe even move to two episodes a week if I have a co-host to help me plan everything. But as always, I will be back next Wednesday with you guys, and I look forward to hearing more from you guys and talking more with you guys. So remember, please check out some writing on my Instagram as well as TNP that produces this, and I would not be able to do it without the support I get from my other writers there, and as the support of the community we have there. So please check it out. We're almost actually 200 followers, which is something I never thought would happen. So I originally thought all this would just be for me and some friends and it turned into something more. And now it's growing and I'm really happy about that. So please check in on all those things. And as always, noon standard Eastern time on Wednesdays, I'll be here talking about books with all of you. And thank you for being around. And now I'm signing off And this has been the notes from the library.